Our scripture passage this evening is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1815. It is, uh, for many of you, probably a very familiar passage. It is similar to Romans chapter 8 in Paul's writings, and likewise the contrast of living in the, by the flesh or living by the Spirit, and is particularly important to us this evening as we consider how we are called to live our lives on this side of salvation, on this side of being saved. Starting in verse 13, the Word of God says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hearts, minds, and hands of his people. And also, with our uh, sermon this evening, we are looking at Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32 and 33. It can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 44 and following. We have now left the section on grace, and we are uh, moving to the section of the catechism called gratitude, or sometimes it's called service, and this is how this section begins. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, or thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, or robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? 
Two things, the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. What is the coming to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. What do we do that is good? Only that which arises out of true faith, conforms to God's law, and is done for his glory, and not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. That's the teaching of the catechism. The question is asked, how can justification take place without the works of the law, even though James says faith without works is dead? In answer, the apostle distinguishes between the law and faith, the letter and grace. The works of the law are works done without faith and grace by the law, which forces them to be done through fear or the enticing promise of temporal advantages. But works of faith are those done in the spirit of liberty, purely out of love to God. And they can be done only by those who are justified by faith. An ape can cleverly imitate the actions of humans, but he is not therefore a human. If he became a human, it would undoubtedly be not by virtue of the works by which he imitated man, but by virtue of something else, namely, by an act of God. Then, having been made a human, he would perform, perform the works of human in proper fashion. Paul does not say that faith is without its characteristic works, but that it justifies without the works of the law. Therefore, justification does not require the works of the law, but it does require a living faith which performs its works. Martin Luther. First time I read that, I thought, obviously the theory of evolution hadn't been considered in Martin Luther's time about the ape. It's a good quote because it helps us to understand the distinction between works, faith, law, love, and that's exactly what we're looking at tonight. We have so far covered in our evening sermons the section of the catechism on guilt or sin, and then now we have just completed the section of the catechism on grace or salvation, but now we're moving to the section on gratitude and service, and if we're not careful, we can forget to look in the rearview mirror and remember that all that this catechism is instructing us now into the future, particularly concerning the Ten Commandments, the law of God, we can think to ourselves, this is what I have to do in order to appease God, in order to make God happy, in order to justify myself. But we are reminded right at the beginning of Lord's Day 32, at the very beginning of the section on gratitude in the Heidelberg Catechism that we have no room for boasting. We've been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. But that begs the question, doesn't it? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Theme. We are... Saved 
by grace, and I always have to do this to make sure I'm, so that, so that we may be free to serve. We're saved by grace so that we may be free to serve. And I hope that the passage in Galatians is really going to help us see the importance of that, see what this actually means. So the first thing that we're going to look at is good works. I got a bit of a cold, so bear with me. The second thing we're going to look at is what is true repentance? Uh, What does it look like? I might have to switch to a different marker. And the third thing that we're, we're going to look at is uh, new life, new obedience. Okay, so uh, Good Works is particularly focusing on question and answer 86. Uh, true Repentance is particularly focusing on question and answer uh, 87 through 89. And then New Life is particularly focusing on question and answer uh, eight, uh, 90 and 91. So that's what we're going to do, okay? Let's look at point number one. And I'll tell you why I called it good works. Every translation of the catechism up until pretty recently had this as the second part of question 86. Why then must we still do good works? But the concern was that that was confusing because typically when us good Reformed folk hear good works, our alarms go off and we think work salvation. We think the wrong thing, right? We think exactly what we protested against in the 15th and 16th century. But I think it's important that we keep it because it gives more of a ring to the question. Okay, here is the situation. We've been delivered. We're saved. And it's, and it's a very understandable question. Why then must we still do good works? Because the catechism wants to teach us that we're not off the hook. And we've talked about this a little bit. We're not antinomian, meaning against the law. We don't believe that Christians are once saved, always saved, so that they can go and live horribly depraved lives and say, well, you know, I signed that, that statement in the back of my Bible that this is the day I raised my hand and, and accepted Jesus into my heart. Now, if you've ever been accused of that, it's okay because Paul the Apostle was accused of this as well, after his crescendo concerning the wonderful glory of God's grace, he then said, but my opponents say that I am then saying you can go and live sinful lives. May we sin that grace may abound? May it never be, is what his answer is. So we have to deal with this. We have to deal with the fact 
that although God has saved us in his grace and every single one of our sins have been wiped away and will never be held against us, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ, we still are called to do good. We're still called to do good, good works. And I think you know where I'm going here because it is a very interesting aspect of this catechism that it saves its discussion concerning the law of God for after salvation. And this is what the Reformers called the third use of the law. We did a responsive reading this morning that was using the law as a teacher of sin, and it is that, is it not? Then there's a civil use of the law, right? But then there's also the third use of the law. It's the law of gratitude. The third use of the law is what categorizes Psalm 119. Have you ever read Psalm 119 and thought to yourself, that the psalmist writing that psalm believes that the law of God is so burdensome and so wrong and so difficult and it is teaching him, no, he's, he's reveling in the law of God in that psalm. He's praising God for it. It's a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. How can I keep from sinning? Lord, I place your word, your law in my heart. That's just how I keep myself from sinning. It's a, a gratitude aspect. Well, look at what it says here. We've been redeemed by his blood to be sure, right? There is the go get him reminder that we are justified by faith alone, that we have no room for boasting, that Christ, by his blood, has redeemed us. But that's not all of salvation. Christ does not simply redeem us from our sin and then leave us in our sin. We see the flip side of the coin. We do good because Christ by his spirit is renewing us. So we have redemption. I wrote too big. And then we have renewal. Justification and sanctification. We're being redeemed by his spirit. And the spirit is what Paul is driving after in Galatians 5. He's saying, yes, you have been freed from your slavery to sin, but now you are called to live according to the spirit, to keep in step with the spirit, to walk in the spirit. And he says, here, I'm going to show you. If you're living by the flesh, here's the fruits of the flesh. This is what it looks like. But if you're living according to the spirit, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And some other ones I probably forgot. Right? Keep in step with the Spirit. He's talking about this. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and also so that he may be praised 
through us. I need to erase some of this so I can write more. Uh Uh-oh. Think about this. Christ says, let your light shine before the world so that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We do not follow the law and do good works out of necessity, but because we're so overwhelmed by the grace God has displayed for us. It would be like, for instance, if my sons did their chore of cleaning their room, that's all great and wonderful. But if they did something else that I did not ask them to do, they do it out of gratitude, right? They do it because they want to, or maybe they want ice cream or something. They're trying to. You know what I'm getting after though, right? We do good so that, and look at what it continues to say, so that we may be assured by its fruits. So there's an aspect of assurance, and we'll talk about that a little bit more because I want to clarify that. And then also, here's one of the, the main places in the Heidelberg Catechism that gears towards evangelism and outreach. It says, so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be one to Christ. And I think these need a little bit of a clarification because there is a temptation here to do good works in order to increase our assurance. But it's more apt that we say that when one is pursuing right living with God to honor him and thankfulness to him, the assurance that comes along with the fruits that are produced by that are natural and are not really focused upon. Because here's the key. Here's the thing that can go wrong. We then can look to the fruits instead of the Savior. We can look to the fruits instead of the Savior and we can continue to, to kind of be navel gazers, right? And be like, okay, so I'm, I'm really trying to make sure that my fruits are being increased so that I, I am showing that I am a Christian and I'm kind of looking down at my belly button and I'm not really gazing upon the Savior who died for my sins and finding all of my faith in Him, His completed work, His sufficient and completed sacrifice. The fruits become the object rather than the Savior, right? So that's where we can go wrong there. Um, and then here, neighbors one to Christ is something that needs a little bit of discussion, discussion as well. It says here that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Um, there is, a, there is a, a wrongfully attributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi that says, uh, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of that quotation, first of all, because nobody knows who said it, but second of all, because I think there's a subtle lie there. The subtle lie is that somehow, simply by your righteous living and never opening your mouth, that someone could come to know 
Jesus Christ as their Savior. The gospel, though, has content. The gospel includes content. It is something that needs to be explained, expressed, shared, communicated, right? So particularly what the Heidelberg Catechism here is talking about, though, is adorning the gospel with our lives. It's not making the gospel sour in the, lot, in the mouths of unbelievers. For instance, if I am somebody who claims to be a Christian, yet my life looks no different than my friend who is an unbeliever, and I tell them one day, I'd like to share the gospel with you. I don't think he's going to take it very seriously from me because it's displayed no difference in my own life, right? Because my life is not adorning the gospel. My life is not adorning the gospel that I am proclaiming to him. On the other hand, if someone is to live a life of righteousness and holiness, live a life that corresponds to what Christ calls us to, and then shares the gospel with them because that person says, how exactly is your life so different? How exactly is your life the way it is? And then they say, hey, let me tell you about my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins. And now the life I live is not my own. It's his. I live I live it now in gratitude to him. That's why I live the way that I do. So that is uh, good works. That's how good works fit into this equation, so to speak. But with this reintroduction of the balance between justification by faith and the balance between what we're called to now as Christians who have been saved by God's grace to live lives of grateful service to God, the question then comes up, well, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful, pay attention to that word, and impenitent ways? So ungrateful and unrepentant ways. And then uh, the catechism basically quotes right out of 1 Corinthians 6 or any number of lists of sins that Paul uh, puts in his writings, including our passage this evening, Galatians chapter 5, that talks about all these types of people who, um, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. If answer 86 describes the true nature of one who has experienced redemption in Christ, what of others? That's what question and answer 87 deals with. Uh, and then take notes of the words ungrateful and impenitent. And question and answer 87 is not saying that sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because if so, we're out of luck, Right? but that those who are ungrateful and who do not turn from their sinful ways, but rather continue to abide in them, live in them with no shame, do not express gratitude to God and all their ways, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. So with this being introduced, the, the question is, what is true and genuine repentance? What does that look like? And that's what question and answers 88 and 89 deal with. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? So we're talking about 
conversion here. And what that looks like. Two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. That's what Paul is contrasting in Galatians chapter 5. This is the old self. This is the old man. Take the old man off. And this is what the new man looks like. Living according to the spirit. Keeping in step with the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things. Right? The dying away of the old self is what is often called mortification. Mortifying the flesh is a, uh, mortification of sin is a, a, a very popular book by John Owen. Mortification of sin is saying that now that I have been redeemed in Christ's blood, I am not okay with the sin that remains within me now. I fight against it all the days of my life. Consider for yourself what the Heidelberg Catechism tells us about the Lord's Day. That it's not only that I am called to rest on the Sabbath, but also that I am to rest from my sin all the days of my life and to fight against it, right? This is called mortification. What is the dying away of the old self? What is mortification? It's genuine, sorriness, sorriness, that's not a word, being genuinely sorry for sin. I butchered that, so make fun of me later. To hate it. Increasingly. More and more. And to run away from it. The catechism is telling us, is this your attitude towards sin? Does your life describe a person who is genuinely sorry for their sin, who hates it increasingly more and more as days go by, and who runs away from it? Does that categorize you as a believer living now this life of grateful service to God? Is this your continuous attitude towards sin? Repentance is not a one-time event in the order of salvation. For instance, if we were talking about the order of salutis and we wanted to be all theological, we could say regeneration, faith, repentance, so on and so forth, right? We can talk about repentance narrowly in that way, but it's also to be a daily occurrence for a Christian. This looks like repenting of sin, being sorry for it, hating it, running away from it. This is repentance of sin. If one could simply pay away the guilt of their sin, could quantify it in a way, then one could give themselves a false sense of security, right? We do this in subtle ways like, I go to church. I serve. But somehow, dinging little coins into the repentance bin. You know what, this is what Martin Luther was concerned about when it came to the use of indulgences. He was concerned that the people of God, that Christian people, would give themselves a false sense of assurance because they would simply purchase repentance and not truly experience repentance. So the very first theses 
in his famous 95 Theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What's Martin Luther saying here? He's not saying that we have to repent every day because we aren't truly forgiven of our sins until daily repentance. Therefore, every sin that we commit, we have to continuously repent of it and ask for forgiveness of it. No, all of our sins wiped away, redeemed in the blood of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, because we are redeemed sinners, we have become all the more aware of the sin that still clings to us, and we're seeking to bury the old man, to take the old self of sin, to kill the sin by the power of God in us. We're seeking to allow the spirit of Christ, which has been given to us, renew us, that we may be like him. We're never going to reach that in this life. All of the works, even the good works that we do, are going to be marred by sin. But nonetheless, this is the Spirit of God at work in us. Entire life of repentance. I know what that feels like. I know what that feels like to get over a mountain of a sin that you were struggling with and dealing with and realizing there's a lot more on the other side that God's going to have to deal with. Right? That's what a life of repentance looks like. It's not tiresome because what we're really seeking in that repentance is asking God to not give up on us, to continue to work on us. God, please continue to renew me. Please continue to shape me and to form me to the image of your son. Because, God, I know that brings you glory. I know that when that happens, people see the works that I do and they give you glory in heaven. When that happens, I grow in my assurance because I see the progress in my life and I give you glory for that. Because when that happens, my neighbors see my life and they know by your grace it's different. And I adorn the gospel, the good news, because of it. So we've looked at good works, we've looked at true repentance, but let's talk about, finally, new life. Number three, new life. So if, uh, if dying, the old self dying is called mortification, then uh, this is called vivification. I think that's more fun to say. Vivification. So coming to life, right? What is the coming to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. So there is a true joy. When I hear that word, I think all the way back to the beginning of the catechism, which tells us what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort. And it tells us three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. We've looked at that. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. We've looked at that. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. We're now looking at that. We're looking to see this joy of this comfort. The wholehearted joy in God through Christ. And a delight 
to do every good work. A joy and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. This is what Psalm 119 is all about. This is what the believer sees when they look at Galatians 5 and they hear of the fruits of the Spirit and they say, God, grant those to me that I may grow in those, that I may know more of that. Do you feel that joy? You experience that wholehearted joy in God through Christ. It's okay to say that sometimes the sinful and fallen broken world mars that, makes it hard to experience that reality. It's okay to say that there are times in my life when I do not delight in doing every good as God wants me to. But the mark of a true Christian is to say, God, please help me by your spirit. Renew that joy in me, that joy that I have by my union with Christ. Lord, grant me that delight to do every kind of good work as you want me to do. There may even be long seasons of our life when we don't sense any of that. The canons of Dort tell us that if God has redeemed you, he will bring you back from that. But we have to define this good, don't we? We have to define what this good is. I think pizza is good. I think pineapple pizza is good. That's controversial. Yes, pineapple pizza is good with ham or Canadian bacon or whatever you want to call it. But that's not the good that God wants us to do, although whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all unto the glory of God. There's a definition here in question 91 tells us what do we do that is good. Only that which arises out of true faith, remember the words of Paul and Romans, whatever you do that's not in true faith is sin, right? Uh, conforms to God's law, and it, <coughs> ooh, that was bad, and is done for his glory. Take a sip of water. And not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. The catechism is beginning to point us to the Decalogue, isn't it? To God's word, back to God's word. There might be many things that we think aren't good, or what we think is right, or what be an established human tradition. But what is good to God is everything done in faith to his glory and corresponds with his word. That is true good. And when a person who has been redeemed by God in the blood of Jesus Christ, who has been granted the spirit of God, now seeks to live a life of gratitude 
in faith that has been given to him by the Holy Spirit, his attitude or her attitude should all be seeking the glory of the Father that has redeemed them. And those who have true faith are going to look at the only place they know where they can please God, and that is according to his law, according to his word. So how exactly can we live lives of gratitude? It's very simple. In one sense. Very meaningful. In another sense. It's not complicated. It's not what the priests did. The le- no, not the, the Pharisees, see? It's not what they did. They said, we need to make it more complicated. We need to add laws around the laws, Right? It's just this. God redeemed you, and he put his law in your heart. He wrote it not on stone tablets, but on your hearts. And he has said, I am going to cause you to walk in my ways and in my statutes. You're going to love me, and you're going to love people. And what is summarized in the two great commandments of Jesus Christ are expounded in the Ten Commandments of the moral law of God. And that's what the catechism is going to spend time doing now, going through the first law, the second law, the third law, and showing us how we can live lives of gratitude that correspond in faith to God's word that bring him glory. I pray as we go through this that you will see that what is being pressed upon you is not a burden, for we're told that he who loves Christ will keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome, right? But is actually a freeing way in which we are called to live ordinary lives of thankfulness and gratitude for the salvation that God has given us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to serve you all the days of our lives. But the longer we serve you, the longer we will know that, the more we will know that you are great and you are wonderful and you are renewing us and you're redeeming us and you're transforming us and conforming us to the image of your Son. May we, Lord, consider the salvation, the grace you have shown us and in response, the way that we can live for you, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can please rise to the